Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. It was a circuitous route that brought me here today. I won't go into the details, but it was a matter of mix-ups and misunderstandings and so forth. But no matter what happened, I ended up here and with the topic of impermanence. And I thought, what have I to say about impermanence? And I thought, well, I could begin by doing the three homages and then saying, impermanence. What is impermanence? Impermanence is the arising of things. They're persisting for a while. Their dissolution or disintegration and their disappearance. And then I could say, the three homages, get up and leave. <laughs> and I thought, that's a bit thick for a Dharma talk. Uh, so I thought, well, how am I going to flesh it out? Where am I going to go with this? What am I going to do with it? And I could not find anything that I really had to say about it. I thought, well, then I can change the subject. And I thought, no, that just trying to get off the hook. Stay with it and see what happens and see what comes up. So I ask you if you would be willing to stay with it and see what comes up. Because <laughs> I'm not quite sure at this point what will come up upon impermanence. Yes, impermanence does mean that things arise, persist for a while, dissolve or disintegrate and disappear. It is the very nature of existence. And at the same time, there is nothing permanent that goes on as a self and continues on. And this is, of course, the doctrines of Anicca and Anatta, which I'm sure you have all heard at least a thousand times as you've been coming here. And these two are related to a third idea, which is called Dukkha, suffering. When we can learn to live with Anicca and learn to live with Anatta, we don't have to live with Dukkha anymore. <laughs> and that's how we get away from it. There is a very common view that Anicca means change. Most people say, things change, I'll change. You change. Oh, you have changed so much. When are you going to change? <laughs> All kinds of ways of talking about change. Interestingly enough, in Dogen, he as much as says, Anicca means no change. We do not change. It is a delusion that we change. There is impermanency, there is transiency, but there is not change. How can this be? All the books talk about change. How can it be? What could he have in mind? Well, he has something in mind, and it's not necessarily easily grasped, but it's worth the effort to look because it gives us a little bit deeper understanding of Anicca and Anatta. And he speaks about a stick of wood. 
and the stick of wood is set afire. And when the fire goes out, there remains ashes. It is the commonsensical view that the stick has become ashes. Now, if this were possible, if this was truly possible, that the stick became ashes, why would it not be possible that the ashes could then change and become stick? They can't. It's because there's something else going on. And it's a very subtle delusion. It is the delusion of change, because the delusion of change suggests that there is a self. Not a self that doesn't change outwardly, but a self that somehow goes through some kind of metamorphosis and becomes something else. So one is really asserting that in the ashes somehow there's a log is still there. And it isn't. It's only a time when. Just for the time being, there is that which is arises that we call a stick. And then there's a time that arises that we call what's there, ashes. But the stick does not become ashes. Even though commonsensically we say, oh yes it does, I see it, I see it. But the ashes are not the stick. Where's the stick gone? That it has become something. Now if you begin to push this, you get into things like my becoming older. Who is the I that has become older? What is this I? It's some kind of a deep permanent self that has gone through a metamorphosis. It is not totally unchanging, but it's only unchanging in its form. But we really know we're really here, and I change or I don't change, but there's an existence there. And that's what causes the suffering. That's the little stone in the shoe that every time you walk on it, say, I've got to do something about this, but I don't know what to do. Maybe I should stop. No, I'll keep on going somehow, and I'll let the just, I'm sure it'll fall out by its, my foot will get numb, whatever. <laughs> but not stop to take the stone out, the stone of self, and remove it. So we just sit on, on it and go on thinking we are not holding to the doctrine. Of, or of of a, a permanent self, when we are actually supporting it. Now, it's not easy for some people to grasp what this is about. You know, how, how does this work on the thing? It is finding the subtler meanings behind what is being talked about when we talk about change. Who changes? What changes? Now, there is also the doctrine that everything changes, right? Everything, if we don't say changes, at least it goes through the, through the procedure of arising, persisting for a while, dissolving and disappearing. We all know this happens to everything. Everything does this. Every thought, everything goes through that process. That is the, that is the teaching concerning impermanence. It's not true, but it's the teaching. What do you mean it's not true? I got the book. The book says this on it. No, not everything changes. 
And it's most important to understand that, that not everything changes. Shakyamuni Buddha realized the truth and saw that there were four noble truths that were in, in that. And he saw the noble eightfold path. And he saw the precepts. And he saw the twelve chain, twelve links in the chain of dependent origination. They don't change. They're right now. They're as true now as they were in his day. And even before he realized them, they were true. And they were in place. Has greed, hatred, and delusion changed? <laughs> well, some of its forms may have look a little bit different. You know, we have different kinds of greeds because we have different kinds of things to have greeds about. But there's greed, hatred, and delusion. So there are, when we talk about thoughts and things changing, we have to be very careful that we do not include those and call them change and call them something that can change. Now, along with this, with the precepts, when we examine the precepts, we have a delusion about those. And that is, we use a phrase, and it is so much a part of us that we don't even think to think about it, let alone think about it. And yet it is something very important to, to look at. We talk casually. And when we talk casually, we talk of breaking the precepts. There is absolutely no one, no one at any time ever can break a precept. You cannot break a precept. Not possible. You can, however, act contrary to precepts. You can do things that take you away from the behavior of precepts, but you cannot break them. We have in our kitchen, and what are we use for serving, we have a set of plates and, and uh, cups and uh, saucers and things of this sort, and those are, quote, unbreakable. That is, if we break one, they will, the company will replace it, because these are unbreakable, so obviously you couldn't have broken anyway. Now, if you drop it on the floor, it won't break, unless you happen just to drop it exactly in a certain angle, in a certain way, and then the whole thing smashes into hundreds of thousands of little tiny, tiny pieces. Now, I suppose you could sit there and pick them up one by one, collect them all, and find out how they all fit together and glue them together to try to make the plate back again. If you have that many years left in your life to do that, you're welcome to do it. But I think it would be one that most people would find a bit tiresome after a while, after the first few hundred pieces. You can break the plate. The plate is not forever. Even if it is advertised as unbreakable, it is not forever. If you could break a precept, then you would be saying that precepts arise, persist for a while, break, and disappear. That is why to say, breaking a precept, naughty, 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 you have broken a precept, when that's not what you've done at all. 
You have simply, at this point in time, have acted in a way that is not in accord with the precepts. That has moved away from the precepts. That has forgotten the precepts. But you have not broken them, nor can you break them because they are there. They were there in Shakyamuni's time, in Dogen's time, and they are here now in our time. And they will always be there. They're not subject to change. They are not impermanent. They're not transitory. And it isn't, well, this is the, this is this year's model of precepts. Next year, we've got a brand new bunch for you to take. Okay. Say, all right, right there. Now, granted, the different traditions of Buddhism have slightly different sets of them, but ultimately they all go back to one single basic precept. Cease from doing all evil whatsoever and do only good. And do that for the sake of all sentient beings. And all the precepts pour out from that. And that admonishment is as true today as it was in Shakyamuni's time. It is the truth. And just as he knew it to be the truth, we can know it to be the truth. And we can live by it. And practice it. As we work through life, as we go through life, it is very easy to fall into some of these things because our own language tends to build them into it, like breaking this. Uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, of course, there is Moses who had the Ten Commandments, and he broke the tablets. He didn't necessarily break the commandments. He broke the tablets on the thing, and then somehow... Well, if he broke the tablets of commandments, he must have broken the commandments then. You know, you shortened it down, and then finally you're into the thing of breaking commandments, breaking precepts. Now, if we follow this along, we find that there is a common notion that if you, quote, break precepts, or even if you act not in accord with them, but willfully do it, you will create karma. And that will be bad karma, because you have acted in a way that is evil. You have gone against the precepts, you've acted in a way that does not occur with them, and the result of that, if your actions are evil, if your actions are negative, you will get karma, you will get bad karma from this. If you want to create good karma, then you do those things which will create good karma. If you had asked me about this before I got uh, invited into this situation, I would have agreed with that. Unfortunately, they didn't give me enough, they gave me too much time, and I had some time to sit with this thing of impermanence, and it came up to me, that is not so. And that there is a delusion that is connected with that, that is important to see. When I was about seven years old, I was in grade school at the time, I was coming home, and there was a little boy there I ran into, he was probably around five or six, I don't know. I will not go into the details, but I did something absolutely horrendous. 
absolutely horrendous. Nothing that anybody today would say, no, that's not that important. But it was horrendous. Because what I did was to feed his delusions and through the feeding of his illusions, manipulate him to break his faith, to break his trust. It was an extremely bad breakage of precepts, of going against the precepts. I lived with it for a little while, and then, like many things in our life, it sort of disappeared. It reveled for a while, persisted, and then went away. When I came to the Abbey, many, many decades later, to be a monk, and I had been accepted as that, but had not yet entered the program, I still had, I had to go clean up my housing and so forth before I could come in. I was sitting in meditation, and it came up. It came pouring up. And I could see what I had done. And I was horrified by what I had done. And I said, what can I do about this? And the voice told me to do something. Very simple. Nothing, nothing good. And I said, I am willing to do it. I'm willing to embrace the boy and ask for, to apologize to him and do what has come up for me to do. And I did Sunday after this. And yes, there was the pain that was the karmic consequence of that act. And at the same time, through that, I learned for the first time in my life how to turn the stream of compassion within. That's not bad karma. It's not bad karma. It's the karmic consequence. Had I not done that deed, who knows how long it would have taken me, how many lifetimes, to discover what it means to turn the stream of compassion within. But it's so nice to label things good and bad. It's lots of fun. Because you can have a chance to express your own opinions and your own views. Oh, this is good and that's bad and so forth. All I know is what I discovered. I discovered compassion. And that was the result of doing something that went against the precepts. But there is a tendency to stop before you do that and to just beat yourself over the head for the awful thing that the child of seven did. And you compound this, or we compound this, by saying, and that child is somehow me. Not that child is that child. The child of seven, who appeared, persisted for a while, despaired in such a sense, and went away. How many of you Hold on to that child in you that did this or that. And you are still using not the child, but the ghost of the child to torment you and make you suffer. <laughs>
over and over again because you're unwilling to let go of your ghosts and persist in the pain, persist in holding on to the pain. Instead of just saying, that was then, this is now. And it's not ignoring it and saying, oh, well, that's, that's not important. This is now. It is recognizing that there is change that takes the form of no change. And then there is the change that comes about when we simply let go. So often we hear the phrase, letting go of body and mind. What does it mean to let go of mind? What are you letting go of? You're letting go of your ghosts, for one thing. Of identifying yourself with that child. Well, what do you do? No longer, the child's no longer there. And you're not the child. Oh, yes, I am. I'm still as seven-year-old as I always was, you know. You're not. You're not seven years old anymore. Unless you are seven years old. <laughs> you're eight years old, maybe. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever age, there's still that sense of, I'm still seven, I'm trying to occupy or work my world from that standpoint. We have all these little people running inside of us. Our seven-year-old, our eight-year-old, nine-year-old, you know, all the ones, they're all crowded. And you don't have to have any of them. And none of them is permanent, and none of them is you, but we're holding on and making it permanent. We are permanently seven years old and rotten to the core. <laughs> well, we're not. And so it's the letting go of that. And that's moving to letting go of, quote, self. And we do this with our bodies as well. I'm just not as young as I used to be. Whoever was. <laughs> How could you possibly be otherwise? I was never as old as I used to be. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't be that. But these are things we, we, we say to ourselves, we say in our heads, they come up. And if we don't say them, just listen around. <laughs> there will be plenty of people who will be glad to say it for you, at least about themselves, if not about you. What difference? It is the delusion of age. You are here now. I am here now. And that's all there is is one instance of now following an instance of now, and if you try to grab a hold of a now, it's already passed. Every Master G you called it, existence, time, flow. The flow of existence and time. Things being just for the time being. And sometimes they're this way and sometimes they're that way. And sometimes we know we're enlightened. And then there are sometimes when we know we're not enlightened. And then there are sometimes we haven't a clue what we are. And it's whatever arises. And one lets it happen and tries to stay in the here and the now. This isn't living for the now. This isn't the thing of let's really live it up because we want to fill the now with everything. You cannot fill the now. There's nothing you can do to fill the now because the now is already full. There's no place to put anything in the now. So what's right here and now?
It's full. Dogen speaks about someone becoming a Buddha, realizing Buddhahood in the morning and dying in the evening. And someone else who is lives for 80 years and comes to know the whole universe and to absorb it. And he says there is no difference. The one is not lacking, nor the other supplying more than is needed. It's just what arises, persists for a while, and then dissolves and disappears. So there's nothing there to hold on to, and yet people grab things, whatever they can, thinking it was something they can hold on to. There is certainty, and certainty can be realized spiritually. All of us have the capacity to realize certainty. Until we do, we are in a state of uncertainty. And then the day may come when you will realize certainty. And then the day may come when you realize uncertainty. And the, the two do not stand against each other. For the certainty that one awakens to, the certainty to which one arises to, is the full certainty. And there's always the going on, always becoming Buddha. There may be more than I have understood. There may be something deeper to understand. There may be something that I need to keep open to, and I need to listen to. As some of you know, because I've talked about it at different times, and it is something that is certainly not unique to me. In fact, it's more common, perhaps, than anything else, is I had difficult childhood. And some of you may know what a difficult childhood is, because you had a difficult childhood. And again, it tends to be the selecting out of, well, what's a difficult childhood? Well, this happened to me, and then that happened to me. Well, what was in between? Well, about three years. But we won't talk about that, because that was, I want to talk about what really happened. Oh, it was awful, just awful kinds of thing. All right. I've been working on this to try to clean that up, see what's going on, see what I need to do, turn the stream of compassion in, out, and everywhere, just do what I need to do with handling that karma. And because I was asked to do this talk and had to sit, something came up. And it was a realization of something. It was a memory. It was a memory from something that happened in my childhood that I had totally forgotten about. Because everything was died, that looking back, was died in moans and groans and suffering and pain. And oh, what happened to me then? It wasn't happening to me now, except to the degree I was keeping the ghosts going. But I remembered this instant, and it was the first time that I can recall from my childhood that I remembered such an instance that was not tainted with agony. I'm not, I know I can see where I was. I don't know what time of the year it was, other than it wasn't winter. 
and it was raining outside. It wasn't a storm, but it was a steady rain. One that'll be all kinds of rain. We all kind of know. It's just steady rain, steady rain, all day rain. My father and brother and sister were out of the house. And I think my mother probably was in the kitchen because that's where she usually was, doing one thing or another. And, and I was in the living room. And I was kneeling on the couch and I was looking out the window, looking at the rain. And as I was looking at the rain, I suddenly became aware of how quiet everything was. Everything was quiet. And then I saw something deeper happening. It went from quiet to being still. Everything was still. Yes, the rain was pouring out there, but that was out there. In here, everything was still. And I suddenly heard the stillness. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what I was hearing, but I knew I heard the stillness. And then I thought about this, and then I recalled another incident that happened when I was in my twenties. And again, I was kneeling on a couch, looking out a window. This was in a different house, in a different situation, and it was. At a certain time of the year, when the, that when the sun sets, the light of the sun turns the whole world golden. I've seen it happen here, you know, certain time of year. This golden glow that comes. And as I was sitting there, everything got quieter and quieter and silent and still. And in the stillness, I heard something. I heard it again. And I was overwhelmed. I can't say what the feeling was like, because it's nothing I have ever felt like before. And so I thought, it has to do with this, the, the silence and the quiet and everything else. And then when I was 40, in my early 40s, and I was in Seattle in graduate school. I was walking in the university district there, and as you can imagine, university districts are not the quiet places. But I was walking along, and suddenly I could not move. I stopped. And there, amidst the noise and turmoil, suddenly I heard the stillness again. And the whole universe was filled with that stillness. And I could hear it. I know what the stillness is. I know what it is that I heard. And it's called in Buddhism, the song of the dragon. You hear the dragon sing. It's not something unique to me. It's not part of impermanence. The dragon is always singing. Always singing. And all of us have the ears to hear it. But you have to hear it, not in the silence, not in the sound, but in the stillness. You hear the dragon's song.
And I thought, this is something now that's coming through. But now that I have been able to lay to rest at least some of my ghosts, and many of the ghosts tied to my childhood. In looking at these things, yes, we take the teaching and we try to understand it, and at the same time, be aware that there is more. Be aware that the very way we express these may contain the subtlest of delusions without our even being aware of it. I'm sure I will still talk about breaking precepts and come along the line until I have conditioned myself to speak of acting contrary. Remember, Master Daisri and I were working on Brahma's net and on the precepts. It came to us that it was most important that how the precepts were expressed, what the way they were put, must itself express Buddhism. It must be true. Which is why we had the translation not to break the precept, if you break this precept, but if you act contrary to this precept. Because that's what Buddhism is about. Not about smashing things. So what do we do? Well, something else came up. What's this thing? If I've given too much time, if I've just given a few minutes, I could have probably not gotten into this stuff. But anyway, something else came up. And it was a line. It was a line from a book. It's not a Buddhist book. I'm not recommend Don't go out and buy one. <laughs> this is just a line that came to me from it. And I thought, this is really, really good advice to keep in mind. And I offer it to you. It comes from a book by the Irish novelist James Joyce. The work is Finnegan's Wake. And it comes in so there's a section in this book which involves two washerwomen. And they have a conversation. And the whole chapter is just this conversation between these two. And what they're doing, they're professional washerwomen. So they're at the stream washing things clean, washing their own things clean, washing, helping wash other people's things clean. They're not just clean, the things of lay people, the sinners of the world. They're also the holy people. They are the nuns in the convent who are always good and always beautiful and always sinless. And they talk about washing the convent napkins twelve. So they wash everything in the stream. And the stream flows on and on and on to the sea. And they continue to wash. And when the night falls, they leave. But they will be back the next day. Because that is the way the training goes every day. Every day. And one of the women says to the other, Wipe the cobwebs from your eyes, dearie, and spread your washing proper. <laughs> homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. 